Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, we ask that you will open ears, that you will give new hearts, give us eyes to see the truth and hearts to love the truth. May we see the truth in all its fullness in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as you do it for us, we ask that you'll do it for Pastor Roy Garza of Pillar Church, 29 Palms. We thank you for calling him to ministry there in California to reach the Marines there at the base. We ask that you will help him this morning to preach the gospel boldly. We ask that you'll be with him and the elders and the leaders of the church that they will uphold the true doctrines of the faith, that they will hold true no matter what they may face. We pray that the word this morning will not fall on deaf ears, but they will hear it. The congregation will hear the truth and will respond to you. Father, we ask that your grace will be poured out among them in a mighty way. Lord, we ask the same for Pastor Vijay. We ask that you'll be with him and his wife Abigail and their son Sunave. Lord, thank you for his ministry of Reach All Nations going throughout the 1040 window, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, training brothers into the pastoral ministry and helping them to preach the whole counsel of God and to share the gospel in the way it ought to be shared. We pray that you will bless their efforts, that you will go before them, and that by your grace, in your mercy, that more people will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for the Khmer. We ask that you will save that precious people, over 13 million people who are all mixed up in different religions, Islam and Buddhism, Father, but they have renounced and rejected the true one, the Holy One of Israel, the true and living God. I pray that you will send missionaries, possibly from this congregation, to the Khmer. We pray that you will save that people, that you will establish churches among them who are not afraid of the darkness, who will let your light shine both in them and through them, and that more people of the Khmer will come to the saving knowledge, and we get to call them brother and sister. Father, we pray that you'll raise up men among them who will preach the good news no matter what. Father, we ask that you will do a mighty work all among your people this morning. Father, we know that we are not the only gospel-centered, Christ-proclaiming church in our area. So, Father, we ask for the other churches in our area that the gospel will be clearly heard from pulpits today and that your, your news, your good news will be received, that your people will be strengthened and that the lost will be found. Father, help us now. We ask all these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. We are returning to our series through the book of Nehemiah this morning. And we have come to the second half of the second chapter. So let me remind you where we've come and what has happened so far. Nehemiah is a man who trusts in the sovereignty of God. He knows that God is in control of everything. 
He calls him the God of heaven in chapter 1. There is no one higher than Nehemiah's God. There's no one greater than Nehemiah's God. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people who love him, he says. Nehemiah is in exile, and he knows that it's God who put him there along with his fellow Jews. God had warned them. He told them that if they persisted in their idolatry and in their sin and their disobedience, that he would scatter them among the nations, and they didn't listen. And God, who is patient and forbearing, always keeps his word, allowed Israel's enemies to take over the land and enslave the people. The people were taken out of the land. Jerusalem, the the capital city of the promised land, was destroyed. But God keeps his word, doesn't he? God keeps his word. Remember, God made a promise to King David that a descendant of his would reign as king forever. For this to happen, Jerusalem would have to be rebuilt. The people have to be preserved and renewed. And ultimately, we know that God, in his great plan of redemption, is orchestrating things, not just for a piece of property. He's orchestrating things for the coming of the Messiah. God not only has what Paul calls the true Israel, the true believers of Israel, he not only has them in mind, he has people from all nations in mind to be gathered in the name of his son, Jesus. Through the return of the people, the Messiah is coming to save. Two ways of exiles have already returned. The rebuilding of Jerusalem has already begun. Work on the walls even have already started, but King Artaxerxes has stopped it. Nehemiah heard a report that the building of the walls was halted, and this discourages him, and he confesses that that he wept over it. It was so discouraging to him that he wept. But he doesn't act hastily in that, does he? What does he do? He trusts God, and he begins to pray. He's a man of prayer. He depends on God, and he turns to him. He knows that God fulfills his word. So Nehemiah prayed for months. For three to five months, Nehemiah prayed, not knowing how God would answer his prayer. He looked to God for an answer, and it comes... And Nehemiah is emboldened as the king's cupbearer. He's in the presence of the king. And so he asked the king to continue the rebuilding. And the king granted him what he asked. Now what we're reading in the book of Nehemiah is essentially a journal. After the events took place. After Nehemiah had gone through these amazing God-ordained events, he wrote down what transpired. What's important to see is that Nehemiah does not take credit for what happened because of his prayers. It's not like he said the right words or he prayed enough to convince God or he changed his mind. Nehemiah says it pleased the king to send him. The king was generous and approved all his requests for the rebuilding of the wall, for all the timber of the gates, and even a house for Nehemiah to live in. 
But Nehemiah doesn't give the king credit either. In verse 8 of chapter 2, Nehemiah says, The king granted what he asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah does not recognize his actions as the pivotal point for this to happen. He does not think because of who he is that God has answered his prayer. Nehemiah is not self-righteous with that kind of thinking. Nehemiah had asked God in his prayers to remember his covenant, to remember his word. And he asked for mercy as a servant who delights to fear his name. And so now Nehemiah has been given permission to go to Jerusalem, to to build the walls, for God to gather the people and make his name dwell among them. And it's going really well for Nehemiah. If we did not read today's passage earlier, you might have thought that this was the end, that God has answered Nehemiah's prayer. It's going to be easy to build the walls to restore Jerusalem and the people. But what we need to see is that we face the same kinds of hardships and opposition today. It's not that easy. We're not building a wall like Nehemiah. We are building a church. And the church at large, the global universal church, faces opposition. The universal church is identified by every local church around the world, and every local church has enemies on all sides. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says he has sent us, his disciples, his people, Jesus has sent us out among those who want to see his church fail. They are fierce and they resist the gospel. They're like predators. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Like Nehemiah, we face some real challenges. The the task of advancing the gospel is not easy. Now we have several options. We have several paths we can take. We can hunker down in fear We can try and be safe. We can avoid the resistance. And sadly, you look at the state of the church today, and there are many, many Christians who have done this. But to what end? How does God get glory in that? How are people brought into the kingdom like that? How do we witness the power and the grace of God this way? This This can't be our path to just hunker down and try and stay safe. We could go out in our own strength and face the opposition and endure persecution and in so doing be filled with pride in ourselves that we can actually face it and we can actually overcome this. Thus defeating the very thing that we've set out to do. There's only so much we can do. There's only so much we can take. We will run out of steam. We will lose our way. And that also cannot be our way. This passage in Nehemiah shows us to face opposition in the way that brings God glory, that sustains our faith, that protects God's people, that defeats all the enemies, brings salvation to people, and gives a view of God that we all need to have. We're shown four things in this passage to remember as we go out and do the Lord's work. First, realize 
that you will face opposition doing the Lord's work. Second, we have to count the cost and trust God. Third, we can't do it alone. We need to inspire people with a God-centered vision. And fourth, we must stay focused and have confidence in God. That's how we're going to look at the passage for the rest of our time. Four truths that give unshakable hope to God's people. And we definitely need this in times when it seems like all hope is lost. We need to know how to keep on going when all the rejection and the hostility rises against us. So let's look at this. Number one, you will face opposition doing the work of God. In verses 9 and 10, Nehemiah is on his way from the capital of Persia to Jerusalem, and it took him about four months of travel. On his way, we're told, Symbolic the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite are displeased that he's come to restore God's people. Symbolic was the governor of Samaria to the north, and Tobiah ruled the Ammonites to the east. Now picture this governor to the north, this ruler to the east, and here comes Nehemiah right in the midst of this, what used to be a capital, but it's now one of the provinces. Nehemiah's rival was an unwelcomed one to the people surrounding Jerusalem. Since the rebuilding of the temple with Ezra, the tension had grown between the Jews and the neighboring nations. Earlier, they had gotten their way by convincing Artaxerxes to stop the rebuilding of the city. And now Nehemiah comes, who's now appointed governor of the area, holding letters of the king's authority, and there's even some of the king's soldiers with him. Their plans of ruling and influencing the region are being threatened. To them, this is not a good thing for Nehemiah to come. They like having the upper hand. They don't want to give up what they have. They don't have God's glory in mind. They don't have the welfare of the people in mind. They have their own in mind, and they aim to keep it. Think about that. Nothing has changed. It's been almost 2,500 years since the time of Nehemiah, and there are still people like that today. They don't have God in mind. They have themselves. Anyone who does the work of God in this life will suffer opposition from that. We need to recognize that and expect it. But we should not fear what the outcome will be facing and depending on whether people are going to accept us or approve it, whether they oppose us or not, or not how much of the opposition will we overcome it. We don't need to fear any of that. Persecution is to be expected. Persecution is often part of the advancement of the kingdom of God, but it has never stopped the advancement, and it never will. Nehemiah reminds us that we need not be afraid doing the work of the Lord. We are involved in a spiritual conflict of cosmic proportions that has oppositions we will face resistance. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we have God. 
We are His workmen. And His victory is assured. We are strong in the Lord. We are strong in the strength of His might. He gives us armor to fight opposition and to fight the schemes of the devil. We can withstand evil as long as God gives us the means and the ability to fight for Him. And He promises to do that. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we go to God so that the words may be given to us in opening our mouths boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is our fight today. To proclaim the gospel. This is our mission. To stand on the word of God. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. To stand on the word of God and to proclaim it. And God promises to go before us. Not only go before us, He promises to be there with us and to win. God's purposes will not fail. We can trust Him. Nehemiah will be able to keep on going even though Sembalit, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, are out there. Because he's living out Hebrews eleven twenty seven. It says, He endured because He saw Him who is invisible. God is bigger than Sambalit and Tobiah. It's God that we really need to see when we're faced with opposition. It's God who we need to have in mind. Our enemies, the opposition, they do not compare to God. There's a steadied focus in Nehemiah because he has the conviction about God. He sees God as powerful and kind and covenant-keeping and fully committed to bringing to pass whatever He says, and it's all for His glory. It's not Nehemiah's strength. It's not Nehemiah's wisdom. It's not by persuasion or in his position that gets the people to rise up. God's hand is upon Nehemiah. And God promises that it's on all of His people who commit to doing His work. That same hand that is on Nehemiah, that enables Nehemiah to keep going, even though he hears of opposition, that same hand is upon you who do the work of the Lord today. So we will face opposition as we go about doing the Lord's work. But that should not stop us. Next, we are to count the cost and trust God. After arriving in Jerusalem, after three days, he spent three days there. Now, we're not told what Nehemiah did. He may have rested. He may have gone out and met with the Jewish leaders. He goes out then in secret in the middle of the night, and he begins to inspect the condition of the walls. Nehemiah begins the process of formulating a plan, but he doesn't know who he can trust. There may be some in the city who are loyal to the other nations surrounding them. If they knew his plans, they could cause trouble. So he investigates in secret. He had to be insightful and well thought. Earlier, we're told that Nehemiah had great fear when he went before the king and asked him about the rebuilding. 
fear is not mentioned here in chapter 2. He's gotten beyond that now. Nehemiah says when he got to Jerusalem and was inspecting the walls, he told no one what God put in his heart. And it's God's Word in his heart that's driving him. It's God's Word that he's turning to. He doesn't want to attract a lot of attention. He just sets out to see what's needed to begin the rebuilding once again. He goes to all the different gates. He looks over the wall. He doesn't plan, though, to do it all on his own. But it would do no good if he went to the Jews without knowing what's needed and what had to be done. We're told twice that he was inspecting the walls. He was examining to see what it would take to finish. How much commitment will it take? He was counting the cost. We have to know what it will take to do the work of the Lord. How much will it take to complete this life of faith? How much will it take of our commitment to fulfill the mission that God has given us? We need to count the cost. We need to examine the work before us and know how to finish well. Jesus says there is always a cost to serving Him. Turn with me please to Luke chapter 14 beginning in verse 27. Luke 14, verse 27. It's page 874 in the church Bible. Here, Jesus is talking to His disciples and He talks about counting the cost. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. No one goes out to build a tower without first counting the cost of what it will take to complete the job. Every aspect of your Christian life. Every aspect of this life of faith has to be carefully planned and considered. We have to count the cost in order to make it to the end. We can't just go at it half-hearted. We can't be flippant about it. We can't expect to finish well without knowing what it will take for God to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Following Jesus is costly. We have to expect it to cost us and to trust God that He's working on our behalf and that He has our good in mind and that we're being brought safely to Him. And it's the same way with the ministry of this church. But it's all worth it, whatever the cost, because in the end, we get Jesus. Persevering in the faith means that whatever the cost, Whatever it costs us in this life, we may lose everything in this life. But in the end, the Christian gains so much more because we get Jesus. Having Jesus means I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's worth the cost. Third, the third truth to remember when facing opposition is the importance of motivating people with a God-centered vision. Look with me, please, at verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that has been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You and I cannot face opposition alone. We need each other. We need other believers to stand beside us. When it seems like you're going to be overrun, the worst thing you and I can do is to turn inward and try and deal with it on our own. We need the body of Christ to strengthen us, to point out things we don't see, to to help us and to encourage us to keep going. And the rest of the body needs you to provide that also. Look at what Nehemiah says to the people in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in? Notice that. He doesn't, he includes himself. He doesn't say, I've come to help you all with this problem. Nor did he say that you're here to do what I have planned. God's given me and you're going to do this. No, he says, we, together. He came together with them and he said, Let's, let us build this. Now, Nehemiah doesn't just have them look at the walls and he tries to convince them of how nice it would be to have walls again. He doesn't use any kinds of gimmicks or tricks. He doesn't try to entertain them and then do a bait and switch with them. He draws their attention toward God. Look what he says in verse 18. He said, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And they said, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah sets his sights on God and gave the people a God-centered vision for building. He's telling them this is God's work to rebuild. This is God's plan to do. This is what he wants and you get to be a part of it. The living God, the almighty ruler who uses his enemies as a footstool is at work and we get to join him in his work. He's strengthening us. He's fortifying the perimeter of his kingdom all for his glory. And you and I are included in this work. Let us rise up and work for him. So first, we realize we faced opposition doing the Lord's work. We then count the cost and trust God. We need to help each other and get others to join in the God-centered vision set for us. And now lastly, we, we have to stay focused and have confidence in God. Verses 19 and 20, we see the opposition returns. This time, a third leader is mentioned. There was Sambalat, the Horonite. There was Tobiah, the Ammonite. 
And now Geshem, the Arab. And Nehemiah says they jeered at them and despised them. And they question Nehemiah and the Jews. They mock them and they're, they're trying to undermine their work. They question Nehemiah's motives. They want him to fail. They want him to be seen as a disloyal traitor. How does Nehemiah deal with this opposition? Look at verse 20 with me. He tells us how he responded to them. He says, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He didn't look at the opposition and measure them and say, may the best man win. He doesn't appeal to his position with the king. I've been appointed by the king. You have to follow me. He didn't say that. He points to God and he says, by God's power in his name, we will rebuild. They are setting themselves. Those in opposition are setting themselves, not against Nehemiah and the Jews. Those who oppose them are setting themselves against the almighty God. Nehemiah stays focused on the task God has given him and he trusts the God of heaven He doesn't compromise with the opposition. He tells them they are at odds with God. And Jesus did the same thing. He stayed focused on his mission in the midst of vast opposition. He trusted the Father and lived so he could take yours and my place on the cross. When he was mocked and jeered, he was ridiculed. He didn't cower. He endured it so that his church would be built. It is through Christ that you and I now have this hope of being restored. It is His death that preserves our lives. There are those who do not want to see Christ's church built. We face opposition on every side. But the vision Jesus has given us is one that's eternal and secure and better than anything we might lose here on this earth. Because of Christ. We can trust God and the opposition will not overtake us because of what Christ has promised. We are his possession. We can trust him. We can know that he's keeping us. He's sustaining us and he will bring us to himself. We serve a great God, the same God that Nehemiah stands with, the same God he turns to, the same God who says this is his work. That's the same God that you and I serve today. We can count the cost and be committed to his work because the opposition have no claim. They have no right to the new Jerusalem. Through Jesus Christ, the God of heaven will make us flourish and thrive in eternity because of who he is. Let's pray.